0: episode 132, The Paradox.
2: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting
0: Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Monica Gandhi, who I'm thrilled to have on. She's an infectious disease specialist. She can be found all over the internet, both in published word and also spoken word through podcasts and interviews online and YouTube. You can look her up and see she's been a voice of reason and calm in the storm of COVID. And we had a fascinating discussion. You're going to get basically all of COVID. We're going to go through the entire thing in the next 45 minutes. We're going to talk about basic immunology to understand what a B cell is, what a T cell is, why T cells are unique to the immune system, how we get immunity, how vaccines work, what are our opinions on the vaccine effectiveness, natural immunity versus vaccine immunity. We'll discuss gain of function testing and really what we can learn from the various policies we had in the United States on lockdown strategies and how effective they've been from an epidemiological standpoint. We really cover just about everything. I think you're gonna find a great encapsulation of where we are today and probably a good idea of where we're going to go forward at this point. As we both believe at this point, we're pretty much nearing the end, if not at the end of the pandemic. It just hasn't been declared yet. And maybe more specifically, we should say it's the end of the epidemic in the United States, where obviously the rest of the world is in a different place since they don't have the vaccination numbers that we do, especially in the developing world, where they have had basically the only immunity coming from natural infections. So if you've ever been looking for an episode to share with your friends or colleagues on about COVID and where it kind of encapsulates everything where we are, I think this is a great episode to share. And as always, if you've not yet subscribed to the show, please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss any episodes. And be sure to go to the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 132. There you can find information with Dr. Gandhi's writing, links to things we talk about in the episode. But first, a word from our sponsor. It's not a secret that doctors have a hard time creating a professional-looking digital presence. Having a dynamic website, ranking in Google, or growing your volume of patient reviews are not easy tasks. We're too busy to figure it all out on our own. Advice Media has been around for over 20 years and works with physicians to create a more brandable online image. Attract more patients, generate more calls and emails, enhance brand awareness, protect your online reputation. Schedule a demo with Advice Media and receive a $50 Amazon gift card just for chatting with us. 3 in 5 patients will choose one provider over another because of a strong online presence. If that's the case, what is your online presence saying about you? Don't delay booking your demo today. Go to doctorpodcastnetwork.com/advicemedia. That's doctorpodcastnetwork.com/advicemedia. Finally, I encourage you if you have any questions or ideas for shows, guests, etc., please contact me at The Paradox Show at protonmail.com. Or you can just go to the website, theparadox.com, and connect with me that way. But without further ado, Dr. Monica Gandhi in Don't Sweat the Variants. Enjoy. Dr. Eric Larson, here's my new friend, Dr. Monica Gandhi. She's a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, director of the UCSF Gladstone Center for AIDS Research, and medical director of the San Francisco General Hospital HIV Clinic. She earned her MD at Harvard and went to UCSF for a residency and fellowship in infectious disease. And she earned her MPH from Berkeley with a focus on epidemiology and biostatistics. Dr. Yanni, thanks so much for joining the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's a real pleasure. Uh, having someone in California, always the time difference always makes things interesting. But, yes. <laughs> and no one ever realizes that Michigan's actually in the eastern time zone. We're actually right on the edge.
1: I, literally, when you just said that, I it hit me that I didn't know this. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for telling me. Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> great give because you as the it, central.
0: in the winter, uh, it stays, or in the I should say in the summer, it stays light out to about 9.30, almost 10 o'clock in the northern parts of the state. So it's actually great, unless you want to go to a drive-in theater, then it's a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> or sleep. <laughs> or sleep, right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I think what we'd like to do, since you're a infectious disease specialist, you've done lots of interviews with COVID. We're obviously going to talk about COVID-19. But I have a lot of listeners, and let's just pretend I'm an anesthesiologist. I don't know anything about infectious disease and immunology. Right? <laughs> Can you go over some basic terms? So, what is a T cell? What is a B cell? And what role do they play in the immune response to a viral infection?
1: Great question. So, essentially, those those two cells that you just said are the main arms of the immune system. So, there are um, when you get an infection or when you get a vaccine, there it triggers. B cells and T cells. And the way to think about B cells is they're the cells that produce antibodies. Um, And we hear a lot about antibodies because we're always talking about antibodies and they're quite easy to measure. So there's a lot of studies about antibodies. But the second arm of the immune system, T cells, are actually the main and most durable arm of the immune system that fights viruses. And T cells are divided into two flavors, one, called killer cells and one are called helper cells. So, um, but, and those are CD8 and CD4 cells respectively. And all of those cells are triggered when you get an infection.
0: Right. And so the, so the B cells were the ones we we're looking at for antibodies, right? Is that pretty much, yes. and then?
1: Yes. They're the ones that produce those antibodies.
0: And then how do you, uh, how do you get the durable immune response? Cause you will have people who have antibodies for some diseases. They tend to last for your life. And other times they tend to just disappear, but then they can reform, right? Yes. I
1: mean, yes. And that, and actually they should disappear. The way I think of it is if we had antibodies in our bloodstream for every infection that we've seen, our bloodstream would be like cement. So it would just be (laughs) so thick with antibodies because they're proteins and your, your blood can't contain them. So actually what happens is it's natural for antibodies. It's not, it's not, Um, it's not a glitch, It's it's a good thing, that our antibodies decrease over time. They wane from the bloodstream itself. But luckily, there's essentially always the parent or the progenitor cell, the B cells, that stick around. And if they see the infection again, they can be revved up to produce antibodies again. And those, of course, those parent cells are the B cells. And when they stay around for a long time, we call them memory B cells that they, that phrase memory means that they go into lymph nodes, the B cells that are in bone marrow, they're hiding out in your body, and then they're just ready to produce antibodies if they see the virus again.
0: Right. And so essentially what happens is something's picked up by other cells. It ends up in the lymph nodes. The B cells, hey, I've seen you before, right? Forms yes. your antibodies and starts that immune response saying, I know how to fight this. And, it, and because you've seen it once, the immune response is very quick compared to an initial sort of the the first time you see something.
1: Yes, and not only is it really quick and they'll produce antibodies right away, but the interesting thing, and I think sometimes we we forget about this when we talk about variants, is there was a January paper in Nature um, uh, this year that showed us that if you get long-lasting memory B cells, their antibodies that they'll produce will adapt to whatever kind of variant that you see of the virus. So meaning if I see, now they're called alpha, uh, beta, um, gamma, delta, but if I have a immune response against the alpha virus, and then a year from now, I see the delta virus, those antibodies have gone away, but the memory B cells will come out, produce antibodies, and they'll actually be specific for that the, the couple of mutational changes that that delta variant gave us. And I think that's so important because I, we keep on talking about boosters and do we need boosters, but our own body can do that for us, that these antibodies will be adapted.
0: Right. And I think that's an important point to to focus on. It's sort of like seeing um, a dog and it looks different, but it's still a dog, right? Uh, maybe it's yeah. a golden retriever <laughs> versus a black retriever or something like that. And your body's like, oh, I've seen something pretty close to this, and it's almost as if the system is designed anticipating that at some point things would change. Right, that the, the viruses mutate, they, you know, pathogens change in our environment, and so our body changes in a reasonable manner, right, along with those pathogens. And so, uh,
1: exactly right. right. That's why we don't call them different strains. You know, we never use, we never say the word um, "this is a different strain" because it's not a different, like it's not a cat. Uh, because you had a dog, right. <laughs> it's out a different species. We call them variants because there's just some different spots on that
0: dog. Yeah, and I I found it interesting listening to a discussion. I think it's on Twitter or another where they're talking about how essentially within you, in your body, we always talk about someone has a the say B one one seven variant or something like for COVID. But it it my understanding is that in within your body you have that variant, but you have all sorts of different like mutations going on. You have millions of viral particles, and so. I mean you're sort of like, you know, evolution's kind of going on in your body, right? These things are changing. And so that may be the dominant strain, but you probably have, are seeing all different types of, you know, different types of uh, or variants of the COVID, of coronavirus or whatever virus it might have, right?
1: Yes, that is a fair point, too. That's actually really illustrated in HIV where when you get HIV, we think that we see the dominant strain because we um, sequence it up from the bloodstream, but then when we call what's called deep sequencing we can see that the HIV strain has a whole bunch of different mutations and there's different, what we call quasi species. And, and that's okay because um, that is natural and actually that's what the virus does, but so does your immune system. At least with COVID, your immune system will adapt to those different, you have know, going back to your analogy. I see like Yorkshire terriers and I see, um, <laughs> I see uh, different terriers and, and different types of dogs and you're, and you're, you're able to produce immune responses against that, the different um, strains, the different variants. Different
0: variants, right. And, and so I guess, you know, when I, when I think of the variants, my feeling was, I guess, so much yours in that I was not super concerned about these. I think, you know, you can recognize the variants that, yes, there are adaptations and um, changes in the virus that make it more likely to infect you, more likely to cause uh, more severe or less severe symptoms. You know, those sort of things naturally evolve as the virus matures, I guess, through time but it's essentially the same virus, right? I mean, so I, I, and then your body should still be able to mount an immune response. Although would you say it's possible that, you know, over time, let's say 10 years from now, it's changed enough that your body, that you still get sick, but you just get maybe like an upper respiratory infection, like what you say, a common cold. Is that because you you can kind of see coronavirus and get sick from multiple times, the same strain, right? Like OC43 or whatever the other ones are.
1: Yes. The cold coronaviruses. I think that's a very fair point. And then that does make us because everything that you said makes me want to talk about T cells. Can I talk about T cells? Well, that was my (laughs) next question. So
0: launch a new T cell tirade.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because when you said severe infection, I mean, that is that is what's so interesting about that second arm of the immune system. Okay, so T cells, um, you know, get produced by either natural infection or the vaccination. But T-cells are even um, more complex. And what I mean by that is the way you measure T-cells are not by, um, it's not as simple as measuring antibodies. You usually use a flow cytometry machine and you can actually see all the different T-cells that form against different parts of the virus. And interestingly, um, just across the spike protein of this coronavirus, there are probably a hundred places across the spike protein that the T-cell, that different T-cells line up. Those are called epitopes or little tiny bits of the spike protein. And they line up and they attack these different epitopes. And if there's a hundred places around on just the spike protein alone, the Delta variant, which we talk a lot about, that's that now was B1617 has 13 mutations along the spike protein, but there's a (laughs) hundred different places that T cells line up. And the reason T cells are so important is um, they do protect you from severe infection. If uh, say say your antibody response has waned because it will, and say you see a virus 10 years from now and it slips through your nose and you may get um, a mild upper respiratory tract infection like you said, those T cells will still be there to, and we know that memory T cells are produced. So again, goes into the bank, these memory T cells, they'll still be there to protect you from severe infection because what T cells do is they will attack this virus when it tries to get to your lungs, and they will prevent you from getting this horrible COVID illness um, to get really sick. So I'm very secure in the fact that I think that our vaccines or natural infection will protect us against severe infection. And then, like you said, as the antibodies wane, if you can't produce them fast enough, you may get an upper respiratory tract infection in your nose before you can kick in that response.
0: Sure. And I mean, when I when people ask me in the hospital, wherever they say, hey, do you think we're going to need boosters? My response has always been, I don't think so. I always the caveat is always, well, if you're elderly, there's a chance that you may not have produced enough of immune response or whatever you know, and so you you might it might be reasonable to think if you're an elderly person that you might need a couple booster shots, right? I mean, because your immune response, well, I mean, as you age, things just don't work as well as they did when you're younger, right? I mean, we all feel that every day. And so I it it wouldn't surprise me that you have the same sort of thing with your immune system that maybe if you're eighty you might need a couple of years or who knows i mean i think you it'll be hard to sort of determine that except with, unless you let time pass to find out how people respond
1: i i agree with you that the kind of the equivalent is i think about places with, times where we say if you're older you're not going to have the best immune response we're going to give you a higher dose of the flu vaccine for instance right. like we give double kind of double doses of the flu vaccine it, it with that idea that going to take a little bit more of a a boost to get the same immune response in an older person so that is true i think immunocompromised uh patients or um older people may need a booster uh but it's time will tell like you say because if they're not seeing the if we're not seeing a lot of the virus we'll have to decide if it's worth the effort Um, because we are seeing incredibly lowering of the virus, you know, circulating in communities with vaccination.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's almost like we've walked off a cliff in the United States. I mean, we're obviously just going to focus on America because the rest of the world is in a different spot than where we are, and where every country or place is in a different spot. But certainly with our vaccination rates that we have and the people who, the large numbers of natural immunity, you've got to figure we're approaching 70, 80% of Americans have are probably have immunity to this to this uh, pathogen at this point I'm just guessing
1: yeah no I think that's a, such an important point what you just said because somehow this natural immunity is not getting into our calculations sometimes <laughs> right. and so the paper will say you're oh only forty three percent of people are vaccinated and then that sounds so dismally low um but that is uh doesn't account for the fact that natural immunity is a thing I mean if we didn't have natural immunity we'd all be um, deceased by now, um, you know, just from from infections. I mean, we do mount immunity to pathogens that we've seen, and and actually, the, the immunology research on this virus shows really good immunity uh, gets uh, is developed with natural infection. So it is kind of an addition of both those things, and we don't know the exact number because we don't know the exact number of people who've been infected. But I think your your calculation of eighty percent is right.
0: And that's the thing that's frustrating the most is because I have a number of nurses who've who've been infected. And they're compelled to get vaccinated because of, you know, either rules in the hospital by put forth by the state or by the hospital or, you know, just you can't walk around without a mask because you've not been vaccinated. But they went through COVID or like they had it. I mean, there's they had documented proof that they they cleared it six months ago, three months ago, whenever. And they're compelled to get the get the vaccine. And I, it doesn't make any sense to me why we're why we're pushing that, because I I feel like we've had a number of studies now that have pretty definitively shown that the, the immunity is at least as good, if not better than it is with the vaccine, which is, I guess, not surprising, but it seems that I just don't understand why there's this push from the CDC and from government leaders, except that they can't quantify exactly how many people have immunity. Right. Like if people have a vaccine, you know, oh, it's been I know exactly it's 48 percent or whatever, but uh, it just seems it it's it just saddens me because I feel like we're putting people at risk when there's no benefit to it. And I talk to, Dr. I will tell
1: this. you that it's the most frustrated, um, kind of, um, response that I ever get to me on Twitter, for example, that people write and say, I know I don't have to get vaccinated cause I've had natural immunity. And why am I treated like I have to <laughs> Right. And I, I think what you said is right. That part of it is because it's hard to document. Well, You'd think we could document natural infection, but some—it's harder. It's so easy to pull out that vaccine card oh, sure. and say yeah. I've had my two vaccines, and there's that aspect. And then, unlike the world, because the World Health Organization, um, it w- put out a document just three weeks ago that was very clearly laying out that natural immunity is likely to last for a long time. We haven't done that equivalent thing at the CDC. Somehow the CDC is not emulated the, the WHO in just acknowledging this fact that people who have natural immunity are likely immune. Um, and you're right, I think that is leading to frustration. And I always think about public health trust during this time, because um, this is coming up for children as well, but vaccinating children. But we have to generate trust. Just say the facts. Likely natural immunity is going to last a long time, just like vaccination-induced immunity. And if you say that facts, then people will trust you more.
0: Yeah. I. I find it all puzzling except, you know, there are political reasons to say we want vaccination rates at certain points otherwise not successful and maybe that's driving a lot of this. I it's just uh it, it I just feel bad for the people who've had it cuz I know people who have had COVID definitely had it even like a, almost a year ago got vaccinated and they had horrible reactions. I mean it was bad pitting edema and all sorts of other things which I mean no you know, long. I mean, I think problems, about
1: chickenpox. like I keep on thinking I had chicken pox as a child because I'm like right at that yeah. spot. I didn't have measles. So I'm like in between the ages, <laughs> like I wasn't born before, before 1965. But if I was, I actually, if I was born before 1965, we don't give measles um, shots, right? Like that is just sort of like as an infectious disease doctor, I check the age and then I don't because I you assume everyone's had measles. Um, and same with chicken pox. I've had chickenpox, so I was never offered nor will anyone probably give me a um, VZV vaccine because they know I have immunity from having these uh, chickenpox as a child. And it's interesting because the one thing, and I know this is so geeky for me to say, but the coronavirus is an RNA virus that is a DNA virus wannabe. And I love saying that because I just think it's so geeky and funny and I just it makes me laugh every time I say it. But what I mean by DNA virus wannabe is coronaviruses don't mutate um, that fast. Uh, what I mean by that is that they're, you know, they're, they actually have their polymerase or their, the way they replicate has a very strong proofreading mechanism. They don't like to make lots of mistakes like the influenza RNA virus um, polymerase or the way it replicates does. So um, it's likely that it's not going to keep on changing, changing, changing when we have low rates. And
0: so then let's talk about children, I guess, because that's the that's where we are sort of in the, in the process of vaccination now. Uh, what, I mean, what are you, what are your opinions on like children? Because I've saw something that said that maybe there are a lot more kids have had it than we think the magnitude. They're much more likely to be asymptomatic. Do you think we're going to be vaccinating kids down to the age of two or three, or do you think this, I mean, I, I think it'll be available, but I guess the question is, you know, what, it, where does it make sense when we're looking at risk benefit profiles, right? Because we don't, you know, long. I always have people ask me what the long term risks are of the vaccine. I said, probably really small. It's hard to know. And honestly, if they're, you're talking about long term risks, like I develop a PE 15 years from now, it'll be impossible to say. Well, that's because I was vaccinated. You know, 15. Years. Right. The, the a lot of long term effects we can't really know, outside of ones that are, you'll know pretty early on. I th- I would I would guess outside of. Being. I
1: agree. I agree with that. I mean, I when I think about long term effects of vaccines. Um, which are actually very rare, I think about live vaccines. So those lives yeah. attenuated vaccines or like polio or um, live measles vaccines, 60 years later can revert and do something to your body and um, fundamentally give you, give you like the actual infection. But that is very rare. I think this is not something that's gonna give you long-term side effects. I think it's side effects are gonna be more short-term like if you have a massive inflammation or something happens in the short term. And you're right, the risk versus benefit calculus does change in children because children are not at risk for severe disease like adults are. And that's just a fact, that, that can't be politicized away. It's just a fact, That's that's they have low, lower, much lower rates of, of severe disease. And so in a way, and this is that public health trust question I, I feel like we could say very cleanly that we're probably going to vaccinate children to protect adults. I mean that that is that is something that's not historically unheard of. Uh, pneumococcus vaccine uh, for children um, actually is likely to protect our 60 year olds who, who who get pneumonia. Um, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, pertussis are all mandated vaccines for children because those cause severe disease in children. And uh, but. Uh, these other vaccines, there are often kind of we're vaccinated children to protect adults. And I feel like that has to be really clearly stated when we get in the public health realm, because there are parents that are saying, I can totally see through you that I know <laughs> the children are less at risk. Just say it. Just if you if that's what we're trying to do by vaccinated children, we should just be able to say that. And um, and I, I do think it's the risk-benefit calculus then becomes different for children. And if there are side effects that um, are harmful in the short term for children, we have to acknowledge those and watch them carefully and, you know, really look in the clinical trials because they're going from six months to 11 years. I want to see that safety data. I don't want to assume that it's totally safe. I want to really see that safety data and then watch children get vaccinated and track carefully and make sure they're fine.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and when I, people ask me about the kids' vaccination, I, generally I'd say, well, it depends really on how what you feel. If you feel like you can't feel safe going out in public, your kids are like anxious about not having the vaccine, then, without a doubt, it makes sense to have them vaccinated because it's just make everyone feel better. I think overall, the risk to either is probably super low. so you really don't ha- you don't yes. lose much by doing it, but if it gains something from you, your ability to be socialized or do whatever, then I think go ahead and do it i I just don't want people to com- be feel compelled one way or the other. Um, so
1: I completely agree with that exactly and and th- and that's why I don't think that they should be mandated for schools or mandated for camps or mandated for normal life. there is no doubt especially in my region um for example that there's quite a bit of normal life will only be once you tell me that your child's been vaccinated and um you know I did vaccinate my child but I actually am um, waiting for the second dose
0: yeah okay so you had the longest T cell um Twitter thread, I think in the history of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably I don't know how long it was.
1: I love that T cell thread. It was I, cr- I mean, that a lot.
0: It was great. I have to admit, I couldn't read many of the study. I'm like, I just can't go through all these. But uh, and you love the T cell. It's clear that you you love your and anyone I who's love at, the T cell. I mean, anyone who said HIV is into the CD4 count, CD8s, all that stuff, right? I totally get it. So <laughs> early on, it became pretty clear, and I think it's still probably evident that people have, for whatever reason, they may have they're just not susceptible to. to to SARS-CoV-2, we're not quite sure why, and and it, we think it's because they have they have some um, uh, the reaction of T cells to the virus, even though they've never actually seen it. Right? We have we took blood samples from people five years ago, and they still actually responded as if they it was an infection they recognized. So there must be some sort of cross reactivity with other viruses or other coronaviruses, perhaps. I mean, do you think that do you think that's the case, or is that why we some people just seem to not get it or are asymptomatic for the most part? I think
1: that's a really excellent question, because I think there's two reasons. One is, of course, if you don't have a lot of receptors in your nose to even take in the virus, I think that would make you, that's why children are less susceptible to get it, even if they've been exposed to threefold less likely to have it in their nose um, than adults, uh, because they just don't have the the ACE2 receptor in their nose. And then you're right that um, I think the T cells really is what makes you have asymptomatic infection. There was this excellent paper that showed that what is the difference between two people of the same age, same comorbidities. Uh, so you take that out of the equation and why one has severe disease and one doesn't. And essentially it showed it was the T cells. If you generate nice T cell responses to for seeing the coronavirus, then that leads to more asymptomatic infection going back to they really protect you from severe disease. and. Yes, I think that there was cross-T cell reactivity to other coronaviruses, but likely not enough, meaning um, I think that was postulated way more in India, for example. And then what we saw recently in India was that it just simply isn't enough. So there's no doubt that there may be some cross-reactivity, but it's not enough to protect you and you really need SARS-CoV-2 specific T cells.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, coronaviruses are super common in, the, in all sorts of mammals. I mean, every mammal has a bunch of them. We have- I guess we now count. We'll count this as our fifth endemic coronavirus because it's clearly and there's SARS
1: and MERS too. So now we have seven. I mean, those aren't endemic anymore; they went away. But yes, we've seen seven coronaviruses in our life. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, So, for me, putting on your epidemiological hat, uh, if such a hat exists, would, would would you, when you look at the different state policies, we'll just look at the United States again. It, it's hard to look at it and find that any policy really made a difference, uh, you know, from a lockdown standpoint, mask mandates, all these sorts of things. I mean, you can you can imagine in many ways that things would matter, like avoiding people. Absolutely. Because you're going to keep you from getting the virus and spreading it. I mean, there's no question about that. I probably wearing masks properly and avoiding people probably helps, too. But. It doesn't seem like any of these measures really made much of a difference. It, it just kind of moved randomly. I think, you know, Michigan, we got hit with a, an extra wave that no one else got hit with recently. We're just kind of emerging yeah, from yes. that. And us yes. in Minnesota, oddly enough. And you even look at the border, it doesn't even go in Indiana. It's very strange. I don't quite understand. A lot of this stuff I don't understand with, the, with the, uh, the virus. But do you feel like any of these things made a difference? Or do you think that we've sort of been spinning our wheels most of the time just because we had felt like we had to do something?
1: You know, this is an excellent question. And I think I've been thinking about it so much. Um, I think you're right that of course good mask wearing that fit and filtered inside would have made a difference. But it's not like we did that actually. We didn't even use the right masks in in workers' environments. For example, right. we just said wear any old cloth masks. So that didn't that didn't help like N95s would have, or filtered masks. And then on the other hand, the lockdowns they were so disparate around the country and they didn't change outcomes in the sense that California had, and I know this because I live here, had the most stringent lockdowns of the entire uh, 50 states. And we are just square in the middle in terms (laughs) of the number of unfortunate cases and deaths. And we can never argue that away. We can never say that we had the best outcomes because we had the most stringent lockdowns. It's simply not true. And our businesses and schools and everything got really hurt. And the way that I think about any pathogen, and I think this is this kind of long view of infectious diseases, is the only way that gets you through it is immunity. It's just the true only thing. So going back to 1918, terrible influenza pandemic, which was, which was frankly caused so many more deaths than we've seen from this, 50 million deaths, and now we're at 3.6 million deaths. 50 million deaths of influenza in 1918 We've at 3.6 million with SARS-CoV-2. It was a terrible pandemic and there was no vaccine. There simply was not. And so the only, and 1942 was our first influenza vaccine that was ever developed. So the only way to burn through it and to get it to go away was horrible, horrible deaths and natural immunity and it did go away. And so here we're so lucky because we had natural immunity which we didn't love that, but we had to, you know, I mean, we didn't have a vaccine before and now we have the vaccine and adding that to natural immunity. This is what's going to make it go away. And that's why when people say, are we going to surge when we stop wearing masks in California? I keep on thinking, no, no. (laughs) Immunity is your, is your force field. That's, that's the long view of infectious diseases. It's the only way things go away. So we will have to look back and say to ourselves, what, did we, the places that were most stringent about lockdowns, can we please admit that it was hard? It was hard for schools. It was hard for businesses. And please be honest about that um, because it didn't save us. It didn't save us. At least in California, it didn't.
0: Yeah. Well, and if you look at California too, it's a very young state from a population standpoint. Florida was, I think they're about the equivalent of Florida. like one of the oldest states, not surprisingly. I mean, you know. Yeah. And yeah, from, from death standpoint and hospitalizations, it's, about the same right i mean um so that uh, that kind of gets into the the next question i guess you mentioned earlier you're talking about the mutation of coronavirus and that's it tends to be fairly slow for and i'll use the term zoonotic and so that means it's it starts in an animal it moves to another animal and gets to human so usually what you have is i as far as i understand is you have a coronavirus that we think pretty sure it's starting to start in a bat and then usually what happens, like with the first SARS-CoV-1, it went to an intermediate animal, I think it's called the civet, some animal we don't know. Yeah, write. palm civet palm. specifically.
1: <laughs> 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 and a very cute little cat-looking animal, yes.
0: And and then that made it into those wet markets. And then, so you had this virus that had sort of adapted because uh, the coronaviruses are specific for one mammal, as far as like getting through the cells, right? And it then had made some sort of mutation that allowed it to get to another mammal. And then from there, it made it into humans, right? And- What's been strange about this one, and we found that in, what, nine, a few months, they sort of determined the sort of the progress of what bat and then what you know animal and then where it entered. We've had 15 months of the worst pandemic in anyone's lifetime. And we have no shortage of people out there looking for an explanation. And we haven't found anything. I mean, we don't even, we're fairly certain maybe what bat it came from, but outside there's no intermediary. There's it seems very strange especially when you when we look at you say it these coronavirus generally kind of mutate slowly you would think you'd find it in, in nature in some in its you know intermediary hosts right what,
1: yeah what is its intermediary host i think that's a very good question and it does lead back to what's been happening right now yeah. in the news i mean i think Um, I think there's no doubt in my mind that it came from bats because I think you can't create a virus out of nothing. You just can't. I've never heard of it. So it did come out of bats. Okay, so then where did it go intermediary to get to humans? And that is odd that we haven't found it. And then, yes, of course, it's odd that it was being worked on in a lab in in early November um, in, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That is strange because what I keep on thinking about that and is if we had just known the sequence earlier, we could have created vaccines earlier. And that—that that is my biggest um, concern about this transparency questions that are coming up uh, around the Wuhan Institute of Virology or what was happening in China is that I do wanna understand the intermediary host, if there is one, I still think there's gotta be one, but it's a, it's a good question. But what, what upsets me most about this transparency question is I wanted to get to a vaccine sooner because then it wouldn't have been November 2020 when the first candidate vaccine was produced. It could have been something like February or March, right. and then we would have been in a different situation.
0: Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, the vaccine has, to your point about the early pandemic, it was going to be two to three years for us to get the natural immunity to fight off, we'll call it, uh, to end sort of the pandemic. The vaccine is just short- We're terrible right. suffering. Right, now. and the, the vaccine now. just short-circuited that. It, it, now, it's not everyone in the world, and so they're suffering from this as, as, as we speak. But, exactly, um, exactly. So one of the things talked about in the news a lot is gain of function, which I admit I knew nothing about. I'm not a bench scientist and never have been. I went to medical school intently with the purpose of avoiding the bench and um, the, the laboratory. <laughs> I, I always liked pathology, but I just couldn't. I just- Got headaches every time i use a microscope, scope so that career was over <laughs> for me before, I, have it, before Actually started I started out
1: md phd little known fact and the same thing that happened to me i did uh did one year of the phd and i was like no i want to go see patients so i i didn't finish the PhD. <laughs> never
0: finished the mud fud um
1: yeah <laughs>
0: uh, so the gain of function to my understanding is it's basically a way of inserting through various methods and we'll just leave it at that i guess that to insert changes into the genetic profile or the RNA in this case, or proteins in the, in the virus itself and to enhance its pathogenicity. So make it infectious or what it does as far as symptoms or whatever. And that's what they were doing at Wuhan. They took a bunch of, they have all the kinds of bad coronaviruses and they were just experimenting with things because uh, ostensibly it was in order to better understand how the next pandemic, a pandemic might occur and how, people might get infected and those sorts of things. But essentially they were potentially making, and we don't, of course, it's, we don't know if this actually leaked from the lab, which it might've, but we, you know, we don't know at this point, but, um, but it certainly seems like a very dangerous practice. And I feel like the benefits from knowing how something really dangerous can get, at, you know, can affect people. It, it's hard for me to understand why it's worth it, right? Like I'm I was a nuclear engineer as an undergraduate. So it's very easy for me to look at fission, for instance, and say, well, yes, we can make nuclear weapons. However, we can use fission to create nuclear energy, right, which is you know great sort of benefit to lots of people. I don't see the large benefit to gain a function research where you potentially create super viruses, unless you're trying to make weapons, but that's not, I think, what anyone's contending.
1: I, you know, I totally agree with this because I go back to the history of smallpox, um, which is that do you remember that um, after we eradicated smallpox, the only disease we've ever eradicated, uh, there were three vials of smallpox right. in a U.S. lab, in a um, in a U.K. lab, and in and the former Soviet Union, and um, and they were destroyed. and And it was a, it was like there was a question of like, well, what if what if uh, we need this in the future to create to combat some super strain that someone makes? Is bioterrorism and and the danger was no you don't want dangerous viruses in a, in a lab around so that someone could do something bad to them and make them exactly what we just said like make them have gain of function so so um, so I yes I don't like I don't like the idea of anyone doing anything with viruses that can make them dangerous um, the other question about that is for example. Um, creating antimicrobial resistance when the anthrax um, that bioterrorism event happened in 2001 uh, we thought oh remember those, those yeah. envelopes yeah. with powder I mean we thought uh, oh you should be able to treat it with penicillin you can always treat bacillus anthracis with penicillin but there was inserted plasmid and they actually needed ciprofloxacin um, so no no one should be fooling with um, with uh, viruses or bacteria To make them more dangerous, uh, and so if that was what was going on, that yeah, we got to cut, we got to shut
0: down that kind of research. Yeah, that's and to your point, that's the transparency question, right? That's the thing we want, we want to know. I mean, and we actually have. It seems like there's a link to the United States as far as funding this this sort of research, Uh, and and you know, I think I'd recommend you. There are plenty. I'll put a couple links in the show notes if people want to find out more about some some science writing, which I think has been pretty good about people who advocated for gain of function testing. And, uh, and they actually sort of squash the idea of that there's a transparency, which to your point, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't think it's important to point fingers outside of the fact that, you know, if people are doing things that were unsafe or unwise, we should rethink what we're doing in lots of different labs, because without a doubt, there's no matter how careful you are, there's always a chance for accidents. And if you're not gaining much from it, you're only just putting people at risk. I mean, look at what's happened. I mean, it's, (laughs) <laughs> there are millions of people who have died from this and more
1: will come. I mean, the way I think of it is, is transparency in everything is the name of the game with this pandemic. So we were actually, this relates back to what we were just talking about even earlier that you have to just be, okay. So transparency has to be figured out here. What happened there? Then even in public health messaging, transparency that, about children's vaccines that that we're going to be doing this to protect adults because children have less disease just be transparent and if it's safe that we may want to do that and that and that um and, and that adults should be able to choose for their children and then transparency about um about when we go back in time with this pandemic in the United States um where lockdowns were helpful and where they weren't like all of this stuff is about transparency right and this entire pandemic, I can't even imagine how many history books are going to be written about this pandemic and transparency, because it was, yes, it was and continues to be, because I'm writing a piece tonight on global vaccine equity and and as soon as we get <laughs> off the phone, I'm gonna go back. <laughs> it's due to it was due it was due earlier today. Um, but but we have to get the world vaccinated now because this disease is still raging. Like you said, it is terrible that, uh, that India is just coming off. I mean, I have many relatives in India and and it's just coming off what just happened in India without vaccines. So so I can't think of anything more important to, to dissect fundamentally what happened with this pandemic in many ways and 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 ensure that we truly write something now that dangerous things don't happen in labs and that also we respond to a pandemic appropriately and there's just going to be so much that we learn from this, but it, learn from it in the hard way.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's usually how people learn things. <laughs> you know, yeah, you, you you like to learn from other people's mistakes. Unfortunately, this is one that affects everyone. Yeah, I I think we're gonna, um, you know, I almost look at the vaccine right now. Uh, much like in the beginning, when we distributed the vaccine in the United States, we were there's a lot of debate on who gets the vaccine, right? Was it the elderly? Is it the healthcare workers, firefighters? You know those sorts of things. And I think, and I think looking back, Florida probably had it right in the sense that they said the elderly should get it first because they're the most susceptible.
1: I, Vulnerable, yeah. yeah, and
0: I feel like at this point with our country, it makes little sense to give small children the vaccine when we have people who are vulnerable all over the world if we have a limited supply i think you know we need to think a little bit bigger uh, than this country and you know whether you make them pay for it or whatever i don't care but i think it seems to me that if you have a limited supply the best good is going to be done by giving it to other countries because it's we're getting very little benefit in this country from you know from giving it to I people. wrote
1: an article just called exactly that <laughs> with two other authors in The Atlantic. It was, it literally said American kids can wait. Yeah. Um, they they titled it that. But but that was our point that a healthcare worker, actually, healthcare workers around the world, if we just took those doses um for our young children here and gave them right now to healthcare workers around the world, we would do so much good because they're the ones that have to treat people in the hospital. And um, and and then we can come back and when we have more vaccine supply, come back to the less vulnerable. So I, I completely agree with what you said.
0: Yeah, I think. And I think also when it comes to writing the history books, I think it's going to take a, a while before we can actually to. Uh, and hopefully nothing big happens before. The, but hopefully we have time because there's so, there are two people with with so much at stake with what happened that they'll, they're not going to accept the fact that what they said or proclaimed was the wrong plan of attack or defense against this vaccine and i think there are a lot of people who have things to answer for and it's it's gonna be hard to get to a good appropriate response for a couple of years just because i think it's it's too politically charged at this point and people's careers it's are so mind, right? political
1: yeah it is but it has to be written clear clearly and cleanly and transparently because god forbid we have another pandemic but we have to have all of this written so that we're yes
0: ready. and i hopefully it's Long after I'm gone, uh, but if it's not, hopefully it's far enough out so that we know sort of what to do. So, Lenny, exactly. any other moment of uh, of hope, uh, the mRNA is a pretty fantastic vaccine, as far as we can tell. Yes, we don't know long term effects and you know what, but it seems by all accounts to be extremely safe and effective. How do you see it transforming infectious disease in the next ten to fifteen years? This technology.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm extremely excited about this mRNA vaccine because. Like you said, um, we actually had it since 2011. Interestingly, like the technology was sure. developed around MERS. And then, of course, MERS went away really quickly. The other, that other, that second bad coronavirus uh, that caused severe disease. And now I can, you know, imagine or not even imagine people are talking about a global flu vaccine that uses mRNA technology that doesn't have to be given every year because it's not against the spike protein the two spike proteins, HNN, which change so quickly, do it, you know, create an mRNA vaccine that's around something more fundamental to the virus. And then HIV is um, very, very tempting here because um, we have tried for years unsuccessfully to create an HIV vaccine. Actually, HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis, there are models that show that if you even had a 50% effective vaccine, these are such prevalent infectious diseases, that you would do a lot of good in terms of reducing new infections. So those three infections, I'm very interested in mRNA vaccine technology for them, especially HIV. We've just had a macaque study um, just just recently uh, that looked at an mRNA vaccine candidate for HIV already in macaques and looked like it was working well, but it was seven macaques, so <laughs> we, need to, <laughs> we need to do more research than that.
0: Do, do you think uh, current vaccines we have could be converted to mRNA vaccines as well, like measles, mumps, rubella? Uh, polio those
1: i you know it's interesting because i people even already have developed them but then everyone was like well uh, you know our polio is working fine mmr is working fine well i could imagine that now this is going to really generate interest yes in up maybe upgrading our vaccines i mean i do think live vaccines um those are the ones that i could think of that would need upgrading and that's mmr and polio
0: Right. Well, in polio, there are there- polio in certain cases. Sure, right. The oral polio, the oral po- yeah. polio, which is I think pretty much what they use most of the remote ports. I mean, that's kind of what they're using in the remote portions of the world where they're trying to eradicate polio. Right. That's all the
1: yes, ring vaccination uh, to to eradicate. And actually, there is an advantage to oral polio vaccine in these areas because you secrete it in the stool, and then that helps someone else get immunity. So it these are complicated decisions right. to be made about mRNA vaccines, but the one diseases we don't have vaccines for
0: I'm very interested in. How did you find yourself in this position we are in tonight? Like you're suddenly become a spokesperson for all this stuff. I mean, obviously, I'm guessing you didn't go to medical school. You didn't uh, wake up in 2018. You know what I want to happen next year? I want to to become an advocate for, I want to be the T-cell advocate. How did
1: did this happen? I wish this hadn't happened so that I'd have to talk about T-cells. But it is weird. It, I mean, the way I think Well, for me, I've always I love infectious diseases. I love the history of it. Like I'm that person who reads those books yeah. about like cholera in 1854 in London and the pump and like how we closed down society and then made the poor people do all the work for the rich people so that the poor people got sick from cholera. And it's all really about disparities. Um, and that's of interest to me. And then. And then I really was very interested in HIV, and that's really my main field. And I can't wait to go, to go back to it. But then HIV makes you think about T cells. And so then I got to be T cell, think about T cells with COVID. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I think I live in San Francisco, and uh, we've had a very lockdown response here, which fundamentally has really hurt school children oh, because yeah. our schools have been closed. And it's made me think of holistic. And nuanced messaging, which is not exactly all my friends and family are doing. I mean, meaning I've had a lot of colleagues in infectious disease that maybe aren't, aren't thinking more holistically. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's what you said that we, it seems to be like, we all have to say the same thing right now with coronavirus. And I don't think that's right. So I don't know why i'm in this position but um <laughs> I, I hope more i i i thank you for interviewing me and, and thank you for talking about t-cells because because of you i got to talk about them
0: yeah well i <laughs> even, i think the first line for if you go to is like can you explain immunology like it's really complicated right <laughs> i try and explain it um well i think thank you so much for being on the show i really appreciate the discussion and it makes me feel better i feel more confident going to put people tell them you know variants not too worried about it. It's just, you know, yeah. instead of a redhead, it's a it's a blonde. We'll be okay. I'm not too worried. about yeah. it. Yeah.
1: And now I'm going, I'm going to do your dog thing. I, I like that terrier <laughs> <laughs> and the big, and the big um, Dalmatian because they're all, I don't know, they're small or big, but anyway, the point is yes, the same species. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks so much for being on the Paradox. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Gandhi. And one last thing before we go, remember Advice Media don't forget to schedule a demo with them to receive a $50 gift card and strategic insight on what your current online presence is doing or not doing for you. Contact advice media at drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. Again, that's drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media.
2: Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>